Just a heads up, the following episode contains stories that may be confronting for some listeners. If this episode raises issues for you, feel free to give Lifeline a call on 13 11 14. It's kind of like a a common sense thing. It's like an advice aunties will tell you, grandparents will always remind you before you leave home. Yeah, it's just something that's ingrained in us since we were, what, like eight years old. I'll call my mum sometimes if I'm walking down Martin Place, like 11pm on the way home from uni, like just because there's scary people around. Whenever it gets late, I'm kind of like, oh, okay, I'm not going to catch the bus I'd rather take the train you should never like have low battery on your phone if I'm walking home I'll keep an earbud out just to be sure you shouldn't be wearing certain things yeah it's just like stranger danger but to like to the maximum I'm Verity Firth and you are listening to After Me Too stories of social change This episode is about public space. The issue here is one of access. It's a problem that affects almost every single woman and even younger girls. The constant fear and the ingrained idea that others' violent behaviour towards them is somehow their responsibility. What is the message from authorities? I suggest to people, particularly females, if they shouldn't be alone in parks to have someone with them at all times. Need to be a little bit more uh, careful. Has warned women not to walk alone following the alleged rape. Sparked a broader debate about the safety of women on the streets of Melbourne. Because that in itself is an invitation to someone to take advantage of you. Our producer, Ollie Henderson, has the story. According to a 2016 report by Plan International, 30% of girls and young women agree that they should not be out in public places after dark. This fear is limiting the rights of women around the world to move freely in public places. There's also like a history of violence against women, so you can't really forget about that. And these fears are reinforced by the society we live in. Even the New South Wales police participate in this victim-blaming approach to safety by asking women or even femme-presenting men to cover up when they go out at night. I know what you're going to say. Wear a coat. I know. But should it all be up to women and girls to fit themselves into these public spaces that were built by and for men? Today's episode starts on a walk. Sometimes you don't have a choice. Sometimes you do end up walking because you think, well, what else am I supposed to do? Just, like, not turn up? This is Leisha Dupree, a PhD candidate at the University of Western Sydney, and we are about to catch a train in the bustling Sydney suburb of Ultimo. Where else am I supposed to go if I want to be able to get the train home at any point? I don't have a choice. I have to get to home. I have to get to work. And because of the construction, 
those sight lines are completely gone so you can't see in and out of there if someone was to do something right there no one from this side would be able to see it The other day I was in a um, in one of the car parks and it's not even the underground ones, but to get out you have to go through this stairwell, poorly lit, no one there. And it was during the day, but there's no sort of exits out of there. There's no other way out. Went down to what I thought was the way out and there's darkness and a blind corner. And I'm thinking, okay, no, I'm not going to go around there. So these little choices about, you know, I don't know what's around there, and it seems really silly. All of these decisions add up. They shape our lives. And women across Australia are making the same choices as Laisha every day. We know that young women change their behaviour, and it can be as simple as, you know, when uh, or where they catch public transport, even how they catch public transport, so sitting in more populated train carriages than the sort of more deserted ones, really simple things. What they're wearing, where they're going... You know, you shouldn't have been walking down that alleyway. You shouldn't have gone to the friend's house. You shouldn't have drunk that much. They were wearing a short skirt. Don't talk to strangers. Don't wear heels when they go out. Things as bizarre as, you know, don't wear your hair in a ponytail because they could grab it. So basically anything that women could or might be blamed for, they are. Laisha says that these perceptions, this victim-blaming where it is common to ask women where they're going and what they're wearing in response to incidents of violence and sexual harassment. She says that it is unfairly shifting the responsibility for safety in public places away from the perpetrators of crimes and on to women and girls. Young women need to be more responsible for their actions, uh, especially actions taken by men against women. And being responsible for your own actions? Laisha says that this is something that girls are taught before they even enter school. That's probably the key point is a lot of women know about these precautionary ideas. They know that even if they feel like they should be allowed to walk alone in public space and they should be allowed to wear what they want and go out and engage and and drink alcohol like men do. Women still feel like they can't. So that leads into sort of public space and whether women should be in those spaces as well. So that's how that kind of ties in. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you speak to someone and you say, well, the street, it's not a, it's not a man's street. It's not a woman's street. But when we delve deeper, we can see that, that space is, is experienced very differently based on gender. And women's experience of the city has historically been very different to men's. This is Dr. Philippa Carnamola. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow here at UTS, and my specialty is really looking at the role of design in how it influences the experiences of everyone, what we do and how we do it. And, and I mean, I know that I want my children to grow up in a city where they feel safe, where simply being different is a wonderful thing and not something to be scared of or to have to modify, if we are different, modify our behaviour to fit in. Philippa thinks the long history of gender inequality the power hierarchies entrenched in our workplaces and society 
have created an inequality in the way that men and women use public spaces. She says that cities are not, and never have been, gender neutral. We don't have to go too far back. I mean, let's look at, say, my mum's generation, the mad men kind of generation. Women really only had a very small window when they were welcomed into the city as a workplace for them. So that was from the time that they left school to the time that they got married. And it was kind of assumed that once they were married, they would leave work and go back into the home. So historically, the home has been the women's domain and the city has been the men's domain. We have come a long way since the madman generation. And while Philippa agrees that we still have a long way to go in terms of gender equity in the workplace... Women are much more represented than they used to be, and city streets come peak hour are no longer populated by just white men in suits. There's so much opportunity for change now because so much around those social expectations have changed. But despite the workforce being increasingly more diverse, women are still more likely than men to have extra domestic and caregiver responsibilities. They are the ones responsible for dropping the kids off at school, the ones picking up the groceries on the way home from work. This means that women often use public transport and move around the city even more than men. What we find, though, is that women still have very different experiences of the city. I experienced that as a traveller. I remember I had, years ago, I had a backpack. You know, you, you're travelling with all this stuff. So your hands are there. I remember I was on a, in Europe. I was squashed on a tram. And there was a man kind of pushed in front of me. I think the strap of my backpack had pushed up my T-shirt and it was just showing just the side of my tummy. And I could feel him stroking the side of my tummy. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> trying to push it down, trying to move away. He'd get closer. You can't get away and you're questioning yourself. What, what's actually happening here? I'm not sure what's happening here. And then you go, no, it's really happening. So you, I remember kind of pushing, pushing his hand away and, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, very, um, very difficult. The very real threat of sexual assault or harassment that women feel when they go out at night or get on the train to go to work, Philippa says this is down to one thing. It's around being safe, feeling safe. 60% of women worldwide say that they feel unsafe in cities and millions of women and girls experience violence, not just as a physical act but as a constant threat, invisible and pervasive. There's this kind of paradox. On one level, we, we want to avoid you know, desolate, dark spaces in public space where, for fear of being vulnerable for, to attack, for example, and not feeling safe. But in actual fact, the type of environment where people are most likely, women are most likely to experience sexual harassment on public transport is in overcrowded spaces. Philippa says that even though public space was never designed for women and still isn't helping foster inclusion. Poorly designed public spaces are not the only thing excluding women from the city. It's fear. In some ways, women are excluding themselves because of fear. Fear of crime, fear of sexual harassment. And if women are excluding themselves from public space because of fear, these spaces are far more likely to be male-dominated. And if these spaces are male-dominated, it's more likely that women will exclude themselves. So having to think about what we wear, what time we're travelling or experiencing the city, who we're travelling with, has enormously impacted women's experience of and sense of ownership of the city. Yeah, I guess it's just like you know from a young age that it's not safe and that you have to always have like this 
sixth sense where you like watch out or like a third eye. This is Chloe. She's a third year student at the University of Technology, Sydney, and just one of the many Australian women who feel that harassment and assault in public places is never justified. No, of course not. I shouldn't have to worry about myself every two seconds of the day. I should be able to have more space in my brain to explore things that I actually like, my interests, my hobbies, my career ambitions, my goddamn class notes. Like, <laughs> You don't have to think too far ahead to realise that not feeling safe impacts the opportunities that are afforded to us and the opportunities that we turn down. This is Dr Philippa Carnamola again. She says the fear of harassment and assault is having a dramatic impact on the opportunities women have worldwide. On average, women are paid nearly $27,000 less a year than men. And this inequality does not exist in isolation from the fear of sexual harassment. That continues to prevent women like Chloe from engaging in the city and workplaces like men do. It impacts how a young girl can feel confident, powerful in just like walking around the night, then how would you expect them to feel confident and powerful in a leadership position or just surrounded by public, talking in public? If you don't feel safe around people, then how can you pursue a job and then feel safe in that place? Choosing how and when we move around a city, as you can imagine, it impacts social, social lives, it impacts work decisions. I think you and I could probably do an enormous brain map of how this impacts decisions in people's lives in a multitude of ways. Young Australian women are not the only ones that feel insecure in city streets and on public transport. Sydney is the sixth safest city in the world, and sexual violence is a global problem. Even in Sydney, my hometown, there are places that I would avoid at night as a woman. I wanted Australians to see how women on the other side of the world lived. This is Stephanie Simcox. She spent time travelling in Cambodia and Bangladesh, hoping to catch the experiences of everyday women as they worked and studied in the cities they live in. The best way I knew how to do this was through pictures. In the image, woman walking home from a garment factory, you see a very dark image with just one streetlight coming through and a woman walking towards the camera, or me at the time. There is one light to the right of the frame that is illuminating just behind her, and in the darkness, looming in through the background, you can see a few men walking into the frame. On the right-hand side, there is a man looking over his shoulder with a gaze upon the woman, alone, walking into the evening. She still was very cautious at night. She would often run or hurry home because regardless of her age, she still felt a threat. And I just caught a glimpse into a world that was so different to mine, but I could almost have that for a moment just to feel something even minutely close to what some of these women would experience on a daily basis. Many women in Australia also can't afford anything but public transport. Maybe it's because we're paid less. So I was thinking before about what, are, what, what do we need to do to make spaces safe? I mean, short of the fact that we can't change culture, you and I here today, and you know, generations of inequality, what might we do if we were given the opportunity to design spaces so how do we make cities across the world safer for women? 
How can we design public space that is more inclusive? I would never walk home at night. I, I have to always have like a plan B. How can we address the fear that shuts women out from spaces, even in their own home? There is a toilet and a bathing area, but it's outside and around the corner. There's no lights to light the way to the bathing area or to the facilities. So both these women who I talk to uh, prefer to keep a bucket inside their room instead of risking going outside at night. Do we install CCTV cameras to catch the perpetrators of crime after they've been committed? There's no evidence to show that CCTV means that people moderate their behaviour in any, any way or are less likely to commit a, an, um, a compulsive crime. Do we create women-only train carriages so we can avoid unwanted sexual harassment on the way to work? Segregation doesn't address the issue at all because historically we have segregated and excluded people and it's come from a place of fear. Do we put in more streetlights so public parks and walkways feel safer? It picks up the top layer, it picks up the very top. What it doesn't do is address the systemic kind of cultural gender inequality that we've talked about that underpins our women's experiences. The problem is not that the cities themselves are unsafe. It's that men feel entitled to women's bodies in these public spaces. It's the culture that needs to change. Simply designing better, better transport and better systems is not going to change what's been, you know, many, many generations of cultural kind of inequality. I'm Verity Firth, and you are listening to After Me Too, Stories of Social Change. So how does that resonate with you, Ollie? Do you, as a young woman, see yourself in some of those stories? Absolutely. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a woman who hasn't had these kind of experiences. You know, I remember just the other day I was walking through the park late at night. It's such a cliched story. (laughs) But yeah, just like, do I go around the park? Should I just go through? And I was like, no, screw it. I have a right to be in this park. And I did it, but I was still like on edge the entire time and I'm just walking home. You know, what about you? Is this something that you experience as well? It's totally something I experience and always have. And I've done all of the things that they talked about, you know, keys through your hand. And when I was 18, 19, I used to deliberately wear Blundstone boots because I thought I could then (laughs) kick them and stuff. But it's interesting for me because I'm now the mother of two young daughters and even though I totally defend her right to take to the streets and and I absolutely agree that the long-term solution to all of this is about women not feeling that they are responsible for the violent behaviour of men and that men take personal responsibility for that Mm. behaviour. I'm still not going to be saying to my daughter, well, off you go, walk through the streets at night. You know, I'm still going to be, I am going to be delivering her the messages of look after yourself and be safe. Yeah, it's so difficult to undo all this cultural programming that we have. Even tomorrow, if I knew the streets were safe, it would still be difficult. Yeah. 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 And I was thinking about this even in the context of stranger danger education, which again, I'm now exposed to because my kids are at school. and. Stranger danger education is obviously delivered to all of the kids and regardless of gender and they're taught to be safe and to walk with Mm. other kids and stuff and to stand up and yell if someone does something to them. 
But they're still taught that men are the main perpetrators, right? Which, again... Well, it's true. It's true, Statistically, right? yeah. But what does that mean for young boys hearing this? So in their Stranger Danger Education, I noticed in one of the little things that talked about, um, see if you can find a woman in the crowd if you feel... Right, if you feel yeah. unsafe, go to a woman. Okay. So what do the little boys think? Yeah, that they're being taught that they will grow up to be the perpetrators of these kinds of crimes. Mm. Yeah. I always wondered with Stranger Danger too that it kind of seems counterintuitive to creating a safe and harmonious community because we're being taught that everyone is dangerous mm. and to be scared of that rather than sort of galvanizing community and bringing everyone together, it, it feels kind of counterintuitive to me. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think there's a role that the media can really play in this, right? Mm. Because the real truth about all of this is that you are still far more likely to experience violence in your own home than you are to experience violence in a public place mm. or walking down the street. It's absolutely more likely. Yet the media reporting of incidences of violence in public places is so much more sensationalised, over the top, you know, reported on than the actual everyday incidences of violence behind closed doors. Yeah. And I think that is a problem because I think we're not actually giving society the information that they need, the context that they need about where violence actually occurs. Yeah, it really gives you the wrong impression of, of how it is to be in a public space. Yeah, I think a lot can be done in the media. Yeah. And I guess that's why we're here. <laughs> <laughs> This episode was a collaboration between the Centre of Social Justice and Inclusion from the University of Technology, Sydney, and 2SER 107.3. Our producers are Nina Kopel, Miles Herbert and Ollie Henderson. And a big thanks to Laurel Oxley from the Centre. If you liked the show, show us some love on 2SER.com or if you're listening to us via your favourite podcast app, subscribe and leave us a review. Today's show was produced in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation.